0: So we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to finish it out here uh, these next two weeks. Tonight, we really are going to look at the betrayal of Jesus and the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, now, what's really interesting, if you know, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that emerges very clearly week after week is that Jesus very deliberately was driving to Jerusalem to die. Like, he is very intentional. He knows this is what God has for him. He's embraced it. He's resisted those who have tried to dissuade him. Like, his friend Peter said, you don't need to go to Jerusalem and die. And he says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. He recognized the same temptation that he'd heard in the desert at the very beginning of his ministry. You don't need to suffer for all things to be made right. And now we come to actually a very strange picture here in Mark chapter 14, because the intentionality of Jesus has been so clear throughout this whole gospel. And yet you come here to chapter 14, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a really remarkable picture that we see, which really is like nothing else in ancient literature. If you think about the ideal of the Stoics, for instance, the way that Socrates dies. Some of you I know are classics, or you've studied that. you're um, honors major, so you've had to do this, right? No. So Socrates, well, Socrates very takes hemlock poison in a Stoic manner, and dies, right? The Stoics had a particular approach to facing death. You also then have like the warrior hero who goes down in a blaze of glory, right? But here you have Jesus, the one who is intentionally going to Jerusalem to die, and yet when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sorrowful, he says, to the point of death. And trembling it's strange, isn't it? This is what he 's been heading towards his whole ministry, and now he gets there, and he 's sorrowful and trembling at the prospect of his death. Even Christian martyrs, after the time of Jesus, have faced death with more calm than Jesus here in the garden with what you might even say is triumphal heroism and yet jesus it says his sweat was like blood pouring out of his pores what is going on here let's read the text mark chapter 14 we're actually going to pick up a few verses before the garden in verse 26 This is at the very end of the Passover meal, the last supper that we talked about last week. And when they had sung a hymn at the conclusion of the Passover meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not and Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all, all the rest of the disciples said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Then going a little farther, "'Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand.' And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, the crowd that is, saying, "'The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard.'" And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out, against me, or come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Lord, we do, oh, we just um, shrink back from a passage such as this. It's so... Horrid what happened. To see Jesus, the one who loves us so well, to see Him sorrowful to the point of death, it's heartbreaking. But it also is so beautiful that even though, even though we don't deserve it, He endured even this for us. Oh, we pray, Lord, send your Spirit to open our eyes to see the beauty here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So so as I said, this is a very unusual picture. And if you've been tracking with the Gospel of Mark, it really should hit you something really big is going on here. Jesus has never been like this before. And, and, And note this. Jesus endures, and he endures alone. The way Mark has structured the gospel is really interesting. You have Jesus' prediction that they're all going to scatter, which, of course, the disciples emphatically deny, especially Peter. And then you have the Garden of Gethsemane. You have the disciples falling asleep. And then you have Jesus being seized. And what does it say? They all fled. Even the poor guy who has to run away naked, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's kind of humorous, but there actually is a point to this. Um, So Jesus, you see the way that the story is even structured, the focus is on him enduring this alone. And like I said, he predicted it. He predicted it. And even though the disciples denied that he would have to suffer alone, Jesus knew what he was going to have to face. Okay, He knew It didn't surprise him at all. And yet, I think the only way to understand this picture is that he experienced a kind of shock in the garden. He knew he was going to die. He'd been talking about it for his entire ministry. But now, standing on the brink, brought something home to him in an experiential way like he had never experienced before. I think there's an echo of this in the letter to the Hebrews, where it says that Jesus learned obedience by suffering. The idea is this, that Jesus actually grew in his experiential sense of what was demanded of him the closer he got to the cross. I mean, think about it. It's one thing to try to withstand temptation for five minutes or even an hour, but let alone 33 hours. As Jesus got closer to the cross, it got more and more difficult. And now, as he stands on the brink, he uses this incredibly strong language My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I feel like I'm going to die. Is what Jesus is saying. Strong. Uh, Old Testament, or sorry, New Testament commentator Bill Lane, who I did actually have the privilege to get to know a little bit, he says that Mark is showing that this right here is the moment when the full weight of what he's facing becomes real to him. Even though he knew it, and he knew it perfectly what was going to face. There's still a difference when it is here. And here it's here. He's now tasting what he is soon to experience on the cross, and he's overwhelmed. And you see that in his prayer. Father, take this cup. And, and that word, Abba, Father, you know, Jesus is the first Jew that we know of to pray, Abba, Father. It's a tender word, a way to address your father. It's not a formal word, it's a tender word. He addresses, Abba, Father, Daddy, please, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. What's the big deal with that? Well, Psalm 75, verse 8 explains, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What's this image? The image is God is mixing up a cup of his wrath for those who have rebelled against him, who have spoiled his creation. The beauty that he's made. He is mixing up a cup of his wrath, and he is going to make those who stay estranged from him, drink it to the very last bit, the dregs. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is facing. All of the wrath of God, deserved by you and me, as Jesus stands here on the precipice, As he's about to go to the cross, it finally hits him experientially. Here's what's coming. Every other time he had prayed to his father, Abba, Father, he'd been filled with joy and assurance. He'd heard things like, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now he's going to cry out in just a few hours, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. It's a foretaste of the cross. But if even a foretaste of what he's about to endure on the cross makes him say, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Daddy, please, if there be any other way, don't make me drink this cup. If that's what a foretaste does, Imagine what the cross was like. And he had every opportunity to say no, but he didn't. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, I know for some of you, I am sure, the idea that God would stir up a cup of wrath and make his enemies drink it to the dregs is not something that you're really down with. I mean none of us should be like, oh yeah, cool, no problem. Right? That's a really big deal, right? But for a lot of people, it's a real barrier. I don't know if you've ever heard of the idea of a defeater belief. A defeater belief is a belief that if you hold to it, it makes other truth claims not even worth considering. So it'd be like, you know, if I tell you that, you know, when I looked out my into my backyard this morning, I saw a fire-breathing dragon. I really did. There's not a person here who's going to say, are you sure? Like, what color was it? How big was it? You're not interested in my truth claims. Why? Because you have a defeater belief that fire-breathing dragons don't exist. Now, here's the thing about defeater beliefs. Every culture has them. You kind of sort of get them by osmosis sometimes you haven't actually thought through them they're just almost like knee-jerk reactions so the idea that god would mix up a cup of wrath for his enemies for many people in the church and outside of the church is what we call a defeater belief i don't care if jesus raised from the dead if you want me to believe in a god of wrath i'm out of here it's a defeater belief because we don't believe that ultimate reality can involve wrath and judgment so certainly don't want it to. But I, I would just ask you to consider this. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, puts it this way. You can't have a God of love without a God of wrath. Listen to the way he puts it. The problem is, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Think about it. Loving people can still get angry. Not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Have you ever noticed that? When you see people who are harmed or abused, you get mad. If you see people abusing themselves, you get mad at them out of love. Your sense of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. There's a, a, you know, a psychologist, uh, Hobart Maurer was his name, who uh, actually right before he killed himself gave an interview in psychological, Psychology Today, This was back in the 70s, where he said, basically, you know, we psychologists have looked at the idea of sin as, um, well, he called it an incubus, which is like this mythological evil creature. He said, we've, basically, it's like the worst possible thing and the thing that we've got to get rid of. And in getting rid of the idea of sin, he says, we have ended up becoming lost. We don't know who we are anymore. Do you know Why? Because if you throw out the idea that God is a judge, you throw out the whole basis for what is good and what is right and what is wrong. You can't have love without a God who cares enough to be angry at everything that spoils truth and beauty. But here's the thing. Jesus came to take that cup, to drink it to the dregs. Jesus submits the most powerful desire he has at the moment to not go to the cross to his deepest desire to do the Father's will and rescue us. And I just want to point out one little thing here. I hear so many students who labor under this kind of silly idea. I'll just say it that the way that you can tell God's will in your life is pray and he will give you peace and that's how you know what you're supposed to do. That's not true. It's not in the Bible. What do you see here? Jesus, sorrowful to the point of death. This is not a picture of peace in his heart, but was it God's will for him to go to the cross? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I hope that you can expand your categories. God's will sometimes involves taking you down a path that's very difficult, where you don't want to go. Peace in your heart is not the way to know God's will. We can talk about that more if you want uh, over coffee. All right, so Jesus has submitted himself to the Father's will, and then he takes the three kind of top disciples, if you will, now, this is interesting. Why does he take these three disciples with him? I, I think for a long time I thought it was so that they could encourage him. Because it's a hard night and he's sorrowful. So he wants some buddies around him. That's actually not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. If you look at verse 38, Jesus says to Peter, Watch and pray for who? For Jesus? No, for yourself. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So why does Jesus grab these three guys and say, come with me? He wants the disciples to see the wrestling he's doing up close. He wants them to see it up close. He wants them to be able to see him prostrate on the ground. Crying out to his father. He wants them to see his sweat like great drops of blood coming out. And what I want you to know is you and I need to see it too, up close. Up close. There's a poem by a hymn writer, a guy named James Montgomery. We rarely sing his hymns anymore. He lived back in the 19th century, though you will probably, hopefully, sing Angels from the Realms of Glory uh, as Christmas comes. It's one of the great Christmas hymns. But I remember years ago stumbling upon a poem of his about the prayers of Jesus, and I was just dumbstruck by the way he describes Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I want to share it with you. He says, next, with strong cries and bitter tears, thrice hallowed he that doleful ground. That means he made this ground a holy place with praying three times, right? Where trembling with mysterious fears, his sweat like blood drops fell around. And being in an agony, he prayed yet more earnestly. Here, oft in spirit, let me kneel, share in the speechless griefs I see, and while he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me, break my hard heart and grace supply, for him who died, for me to die. That those lines here, oft in spirit, let me kneel. Share in the speechless griefs I see. You see, that's what Jesus wants. He wants these three guys to be able to see up close, and he wants us as well to kneel here. You know, the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon said, whenever I find a mystery in the Bible, I consider that God has set there a little altar for me to kneel and worship him, that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. And this is quite a mystery, that the innocent Son of God would go to the cross, that he would endure this agony, but he considered it so important for his people to see his torment. Why? Well, of course you know. It's because you need to know that the gospel is big enough for your sin and your brokenness. You need to know and I need to know that Jesus did more than just give us a helping hand. You and I need to know that when we engage in real damnable sin, that Jesus did enough for that. And so he says, come and watch up close to what I am enduring. And, and I love these lines where Montgomery says, while he felt what I should feel. You know, we sang that hymn, Rock of Ages, and I love that, that verse where it says, could my zeal no respite? No. That means even if you could be fired up for Jesus all the time, if you never had any kind of rest in your zeal, it was always like, up here, yay Jesus. Could my tears forever flow. That means even if you really could weep over your sin the way it deserves, even if you could, what's the next line? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That means no matter how fired up you are for Jesus, no matter how many tears you cry over your sin, it's still not enough. The only thing that will reconcile you to God, the Father, is what Jesus did, and that's why he wants you to see what he's suffering up close. Because he did everything necessary for you to be reconciled to God the Father. And what did it feel like for Jesus to love us? Well, it felt like torture. I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we get in a place where our heartache is so present to us. and, And the love of God seems so distant. And what I want to try to help you see is that in that heartache, in that shame, in whatever it is that is the thing you would do anything to not feel, there's actually right there at that spot a doorway into what it felt like for Jesus to go to the cross. Do you know what I mean? If you're feeling overwhelmed by shame, Jesus knows what that's like. He felt it more intensely than you did. And you actually have a way to commune with him in the midst of that. You have a doorway into understanding what the love of Jesus felt like for him. I love that the disciples falling asleep was not edited out of the story. Because disciples, followers of Jesus, are not supermen, they're not superwomen. In fact, we get a powerful picture of that as the story goes on. So the arresting party, right, they come with swords and with clubs, even though none of that's necessary, right? They still don't get it. But Jesus is not fighting back, though Peter wants to. The other Gospels, the Gospel of John tells us that Peter was the guy who cut off the servant's ear, and Jesus had to heal the guy's ear. You know, Um, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. And denied by those who swore they would never do that. And still he calmly lets himself be handed over to sinners. Listen, if you have betrayed Jesus, you have not betrayed Jesus worse than all those disciples who fled when he was seized. And still he goes to the cross. But look at the very last little bit. Verse 51 and verse 52. The word used here, actually, for a young man is a particular word that refers and puts an emphasis on his strength and fitness. He was a strapping young man. But even this strong young guy is impotent when it comes to helping Jesus. He runs away naked, full of shame. But who is the unnamed guy? Most scholars believe it's Mark himself the author of this gospel. He's like, I was there. I ran away too. I I ran away naked. I didn't even want to stay and get my clothes. (laughs) That's how little I was to help Jesus. And still Jesus goes to the cross. I I love this this, uh, verse from a hymn by Ann Steele, one of my favorite hymn writers. She t- she says it this way, still his unwearied love pursued salvation's glorious plan, and firm the approaching horrors viewed, deserved by guilty man. What pain, what soul oppressing pain the great redeemer bore, while bloody sweat like drops of rain distilled from every pore. I love that word distilled refers to preciousness. It's precious. We're going to end by um, singing a hymn. I actually uh, gave you a hymn that you might use as a meditation. It's actually by James Montgomery, the guy who wrote the poem that I quoted from. He also wrote a hymn that is somewhat along those lines. We're not going to sing that one because you guys don't know it. Um, But I give it to you as something to meditate on and even to reflect on. But I'm going to call the worship team up and they're going to sing one more hymn. And as they're coming up, I'm going to pray.